James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10 is our lesson this morning. If you've been with us for the last months, three or four months, I'm not sure how long we've been in James. We started James way back at the beginning of fall, and we've taken a few breaks along the way because of 2020 and such, but uh, we're in James 4 now, and the series, the theme we've gave the series is growing up for God. These are lessons on Christian maturity, growing up for God. And now we're in James 4, verses 1 to 10. And the title of the lesson today is called A Tug of War. A Tug of War. Did you ever wish for the ideal life? Did you ever wish you could have the ideal life? Like 2020 is kind of the antithesis of what we actually want. We want the ideal circumstances, the ideal life. Well, I just have 10 things and I just want you to think about. They're not really things you need to answer back. But think about these in your mind as we think about this. Don't you wish. I have 10 don't you wish uh, statements. And just want you to think about these, okay? Especially as we're nearing the end of 2020. Number one, don't you wish you could eat all the Christmas goodies you want to and not gain a single pound? Yes. Anyone with me on that one? Just eat and eat. <laughs> Back there, I see that hand head. Don't you wish you could just eat and eat and eat and consume whatever you wanted and not gain a single pound? Look fantastic at the end of the holidays? That would be the ideal life. Number two, don't you wish you could buy all the Christmas presents you needed to and not have to spend a dime? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So you buy all the gifts you need to and it doesn't cost you a thing. In the ideal life, that's what would happen. Number three, don't you wish you could go everywhere you wanted to go and spend time with whomever you wanted to and never get sick? It's part of 2020. We wish we could be everywhere with everyone right now and there would be no threat of a virus, but uh, so be it. Number four, don't you wish... You could say whatever you wanted to and never offend anybody. Don't you wish you could get a lot off your chest and no one would be offended? We don't live in that kind of world, do we? Everything offends people today. But don't you wish you could just say whatever you wanted to, whatever needed to be said, and just trust that? What's that? You guys have something to say to me? Oh, the airing of grievances. Yes, yes. Well, in the ideal world, that's what it would look like. Say whatever you wanted to and no one's offended. They're like, yeah, I needed to hear that. Uh, number five, don't you wish you could drive as fast as you wanted to and never get a ticket and never get in an accident? Somehow my mom's pulled that one off. I'm not sure how, but uh, don't you wish you could drive as fast as you want? No ticket, no accident, just sail like the Autobahn. Right. What do they go, hundreds hundreds of miles oh, an hour? Yeah. yeah, 150 miles. 150, yeah. Wouldn't that be great, just sail along and no threat of anything? Uh, number six, don't you wish you could sleep in every morning? And never get in trouble for being late to work. Never miss anything. You could sleep in, get all the rest you needed to, and uh, still get to work on time. Still have no one angry with you. Number seven, don't you wish you could forget about hygiene altogether and still look fabulous? Right? Do you wish you could just stop brushing your teeth? That's annoying. Who needs to do that anymore? Stop showering. I'm teasing. But don't you wish you could just skip the hygiene and just look fantastic, look fabulous all the time? In the ideal world, you would. Number eight, don't you wish you could tell your boss what you really feel about them? And yes. you would, you do? <laughs> and sometimes you do. Um, don't you wish you could tell your boss what you really feel about them and you would also get that raise that you're hoping to get? In the ideal world, you would tell him what you want and you would still get the raise. And number nine, don't you wish you never had to exercise and you still were incredibly fit? You never had to walk anywhere. You never had to run or work out in the gym. And you were incredibly fit and trim. In the ideal world, we would. And number 10, don't you wish that people loved you selflessly all the time? 
but you never had to do the same for them. Hopefully we're not amening that one, but I feel in the ideal world that's kind of what some of us expect, is that people would love us selflessly all the time and we never have to do the same for them. Well, follow me in James chapter 4, as we're going to look at something kind of like that today, a tug of war. There's a tug of war going on, and we will explain this as we go, but I want to read the text. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, follow along as I read. Listen to the word of God. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. A tug of war is the lesson today, a tug of war. James brings up two huge problems in the church, and he gives us one huge solution. Two problems one solution. Now, this is a very big text. It's not very long, but there's so much in this. Sometimes you get one of those passages where you just, you teach the gist of it. And then sometimes you kind of have to pour over every single verse because every verse is almost its own sermon. Well, today we have kind of one of those, that every single leaf and rock needs to be turned over. And we're going to do our best, but I don't think we're going to finish this in one sermon. So, Today we're going to call it Tug of War Part 1, and Lord willing, we'll come back next Sunday and look at Part 2 of the Tug of War. So if you notice in my Bible, at least in the English Standard Version, there are three paragraphs. Two problems, one solution. The first two paragraphs are the problems, the last paragraph is the solution. So after thinking about it for a while, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to look at problem number one today, jump over problem number two, and look at that next week. And then each week we'll look at the solution as well and be motivated by the solution. So today we're going to focus on problem number one, which is verses one to three, which is quite, quite bluntly selfishness and greed. The first problem here that the church is dealing with in the book of James is selfishness and greed. Let's read it again, verses one to three. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We need to remember what James just taught us. If you were here last week for Pastor Mel's great lesson, he spoke about what we put in is what we get out. Whatever we put into the heart is what stays in the heart and what comes out into our lives. And so, James is simply picking up where we left off, talking about what you put in is what you get out. So he's finishing that thought that we had from this past week, 
that whatever we put into our hearts is what we get out of our lives. And now James is doing that very thing. He's describing the fruits that he's seen inside the church. And it's not a very pretty scene. It's a lot of bad fruits. See, apparently there was bickering and hatred going on in the church between brothers and sisters in Christ. Hating, bickering, and division going on in the church. Well, maybe that's how it was then, right? But that's certainly not how it is now. We've accomplished many things in the church. We don't struggle with those things anymore. Is that true? No, it's not true. Unfortunately, hatred and bickering is in the contemporary church as well. That's pretty obvious to anyone who's been in the church for a long time. There's still hating. There's still bickering in the church. And this is sort of an age-old problem. People who should get along swimmingly, but don't. They don't. And James begins by telling us the reason for every single conflict in the church. And this is what he says. He says, your passions are at war within you. That's why. That's why there's conflicts in the church. Your passions are at war within you. Do you see the tug of war? There's an immediate tug of war he brings up. But what does that mean? What does it mean that our passions are at war within us? Well, I'm going to give you a little bit of a doctrinal lesson here before we move on this morning because we need to understand why there's such an inward struggle in every Christian's life. You see, every single Christian has this inward struggle. Regardless of your level of maturity, there's still an inward struggle inside each one of us. Between our old flesh, that word is our referring to our old sinful nature. The scriptures call it the flesh. There's an old flesh that still remains in every single Christian, and that flesh desires to be satisfied. Did you know that? The flesh wants what the flesh wants. But, In every single Christian, we also have the Holy Spirit of Jesus living inside of us. That is our new righteous nature. So inside every single Christian are two natures. An old sinful flesh and a new righteous nature based on Jesus Christ. And both the flesh and the spirit want to be satisfied. Both of them do. And they're going in polar opposite directions. So the flesh wants this. The Spirit wants this, and they're both inside of us. And there's the tug of war. According to the scripture in the gospel, when Jesus enters a soul through the faith of that soul, he unlocks the chains of sin and death on that soul. And that soul is then completely and entirely free from the slavery of their old sinful flesh. That flesh doesn't own us anymore. The chains have been unlocked. We've been set free. And Jesus also gives that new soul spiritual life, new spiritual life, and grants them power to live completely differently than they did before. New life, new nature, and a new power so that we can live according to the will and the desires of God, where before all we had was the flesh. We couldn't. There was no struggle before. In fact, if you change your perspective on 2020, it's interesting how you can look at some of the positive things. Well, if you look at this and you go, well, that's, that's kind of a bummer to realize that there's this inside tug of war. And that's true. But before that was happening, there was no tug of war at all. It was simply the flesh owning us and controlling us and leading us straight to the pits of hell. There was no struggle at all. We were completely in slavery to the flesh and to our sinful desires. But the life-changing power of the gospel tells us that we are forgiven and we are saved from the power of sin. 
We are forgiven from our sins and we are saved from the power that sin has over us. When we, are tr- when we trust in Jesus, we're forgiven from our past sins. That's true. We are. And that's a powerful gospel truth. We don't have to pay for our sinful choices on Judgment Day if we belong to Jesus Christ and we finish our course in following him. The sins that we have committed, we don't have to pay for because of Jesus Christ's cleansing blood. That's number one. And number two is this. We have been given a new nature with new power. And sometimes I feel like we emphasize number one and we forget about number two. We want to be forgiven, but the New Testament writers all the time talk about this new nature with this new power, and that new power allows us to live against the sins that we used to live for. And I wish I kind of understood that growing up. I I understood the forgiveness part, but not the new power and new nature part. But this means that we have divine power from God to say no to our old sinful desires of the flesh. And before, we didn't have that power. In fact, not only can we say no, we must say no if we want to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus will not co-reign with our sinful desires. Did you know that? He will not co-reign with our sinful desires. Either they will go or he will go. Jesus does not pull up to the flesh and say, hey, let's do this together. Let's tag team this. Let's both reign now. Can I have a position next to you? I just want part of this. That's not what happens at all. It'd be like Biden and Trump ruling the country together. That's never going to happen. These two guys think so differently than each other. So Jesus and the flesh will not co-reign in the soul. It's either Jesus or it's the flesh. But I want you to notice it's not an automatic thing that takes place, okay? Just because Jesus comes in, it doesn't mean there's no struggle anymore. There's no temptation anymore because you and I have a choice in this matter. We can either use that raw godly power God has given us that we have access to against our sins, and we can use it to submit to God's will, or we can neglect that power and give in to our sinful flesh. So we have the power but we have a choice what to do with that power. Use it or neglect it. I think for a long time in my life I had access to the power, but I was neglecting that power, and I continued to make choices to give in to the sinful flesh. Or remember when we talked about the story of Lazarus, when Lazarus dies and Jesus goes to his tomb, and Lazarus had been dead for four days, and Jesus goes to the tomb and yells into the tomb, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus in a moment is made alive. And now Lazarus has a choice whether to come out of the tomb or stay in the tomb. That's kind of what we're talking about today. When Jesus comes in, he kicks off the old chains that own us. And he gives us new life with new power. But he also gives us that same choice to continue to stay in the tomb or to come out of the tomb and live like a new person. But the sinful flesh remains in every Christian until we reach full sanctification in Jesus. That's a big word, isn't it? And we won't reach this full sanctification until we finish our course here upon the earth. We will not be fully sanctified, which means made like Jesus, until we're in heaven. So until then, we, while we're on this earth, this tug of war continues. This tug of war rages on between the flesh and the spirit. But, 
Our new righteous nature that Jesus gave us, completely free of charge, that new nature screams at us every day and tells us that we're free. We're free from the control of our old sinful flesh. He doesn't own us anymore. And we have divine power over any remaining sinful tug on our flesh, over our minds and our hearts. We're in the driver's seat. Thanks to Jesus Christ and his gospel and the power that we get through Jesus, we are in the driver's seat to say no to our old sinful desires or to go back to them and live in them once again. And not only do we have access to God's power, but here is where the entire thing takes a turn, a really dramatic turn. We have been given the Holy Spirit of Jesus to reside within us. I want you to think about that for a moment. Think about, the, think about that for a moment, that God's, Jesus' Holy Spirit resides in every single Christian. Now, Jesus came from heaven to live upon the earth 2,000-ish years ago, and that news was amazing enough that it caused myriads of angels to appear to shepherds in the night sky, praising and giving glory to God. Right? We celebrate that this season. The angels appeared to the shepherds of the night sky, telling them the news that the Christ child was here, praising God and giving glory to God. It was amazing enough that wise men traveled miles upon miles just to take a glimpse at the Christ child. It was amazing enough that we dedicate an entire season to the celebration of Christ's birth and advent. The Son of God came to this earth to live with us, and we glory in that day, and rightly so. The name that was given to the Son of God was Emmanuel which means God is with us. Isn't that a powerful name? Emmanuel, which means God is with us. That's what Jesus' name means. And as amazing as that news was, you might say it's shallow compared to the news that Jesus gave his disciples when he was about to leave the earth and ascend back to heaven. It comes from John 16, 7 to 11. I want you to picture the scene. For three years, Jesus had been with the disciples, guiding them, instructing them, teaching them, counseling them, giving them power, letting them see his miracles for three years. And then Jesus dies, and it looks like it's over. And three days later, Jesus resurrects, and it looks like it's back on, and everybody's happy again. And then Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to leave you permanently. I'm going to leave you here upon the earth indefinitely. And so let's pick up the reading in John 16, 7 to 11. Listen to what Jesus says, because it's interesting language. He says in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, disciples of mine, it is to your advantage that I go away. Wait, what? It's to my advantage, Jesus, that you go away? How can that possibly be? I've had your power, your influence, your discipleship for three years. You've been next to me for three years. You've been watching over me for three years. How is it possible that it's to my advantage that you would go away? And this is what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Wait, what? The helper? Who's this helper? He goes on to say, when he comes, when the helper comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Guys, the helper is the Holy Spirit. When Jesus said, I'm leaving, but it's to your advantage that I leave, he's saying you're about to upgrade. You're about to get an enormous upgrade. 
You're about to go from having me next to you to having me live inside of you. I know you're sad. I know it's hard to think of my physical presence not being next to you from now on, but it's actually going to be a significant upgrade. And guys, I want us to understand that today. The Holy Spirit lives inside each one of us if we've given our lives to Jesus Christ. Jesus lives within us. Now, there should be an entire season dedicated to that spiritual advent. Jesus came at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 there in Jerusalem, and he resided with his people in such a profound way. And now everyone who trusts in Jesus and submits their lives to him receives this Holy Spirit to dwell within them. Every single Christian, not just apostles, not just pastors, everyone who turns and trusts in Jesus Christ gets Jesus to live inside of them. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, Paul writing, he says this, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You were not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. Now, there used to be physical, literal temples, right? Remember that from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, they would have places where they would meet and gather with God. God would meet with them in the temple. So that was really special. You would travel to the temple in efforts that God would come to the temple and you would meet there together. And now Paul is saying the temple is now your body. I meet with you 24-7 in your own body because I have made your body my holy temple. My Holy Spirit now resides inside your body. And maybe we become numb to that. Maybe that's not a big piece of news anymore, but it should be. I mean, that's a shocking, powerful piece of news that Jesus Christ came to earth and then he says, I'm going to live inside of you from now on. Not next to you. Not around the corner. Not teaching up in the pulpit. I'm going to be inside of you. And he's basically telling us we don't need Jesus living next to us. We don't need him living next to us. Because we have him inside of us. And I want you to think how profound that truth is. Anyone worried today? Anyone scared? Anyone doubtful? Wouldn't it be great if you and I could have a little bit of God to overcome all of that? That would be the ideal world, right? If God's power and God's peace would come upon me to deal with everything that 2020 is throwing at me. Man, that would be great. If God could just give me a little bit part of him and who he is, I could conquer and overcome everything in this world. That would be tremendous. But James is saying, oh, Christian, you have so much more than that. Jesus, the very Jesus, the very Christ and Son of God, lives inside of you. You have no reason to fear. You have no reason to be worried about anything. If Jesus has made his new temple your very body, Jesus now calls your body his earthly home. When Jesus was living upon the earth, he kind of wandered around and he said in that passage, I don't have a place to lay my head. You want to follow me, but be careful, I don't have a place to lay my head. And now Jesus says, and now I dwell within you. My home is your body. And that's just an amazing truth that we need to understand doctrinally before we move on because we already mentioned we have a sinful flesh tugging at our hearts and minds to go back to the tomb. Go back to our sinful habits. Go back to slavery of the devil. That's what the flesh wants. The flesh wants sin. 
And we also have a really powerful enemy called the devil who every single day is seeking to destroy us. Think about this. If we have a really strong flesh who wants sin, so you could basically say we want sin because the flesh is us, old us, but it's still us. And we have a devil who's really powerful, really crafty, and wants to destroy us by sin every single day. Why haven't we been destroyed yet? If that's true, and it is true doctrinally, why haven't we been destroyed yet? We want sin, and the devil wants us to have sin. Well, it's because Jesus' Holy Spirit hates those sinful desires that we used to live for. And he's not going to allow us to go back to them and live in them any longer because he died. He died to free us from the domain and control of the devil. And that death will never, ever be in vain. Jesus is going to get a great victory in our souls. And we know this because when it was the worst possible scenario, Jesus died on the cross, it's over. Three days later, he arose from the grave. And he's telling us today, victory is coming, Christian. It's coming. Trust the process. But old habits are hard to break, aren't they not? Old habits are hard to break. We have a new and completely cleansed soul, praise the Lord. But we have long, bad habits that have trained us towards doing what is evil. Have you ever tried to break a bad habit? Honestly, I'm going to share one with you right now that maybe you know, maybe you don't know, but it's gross. I bite my nails. And I've bit my nails for the last 30-some years. I don't even know. And uh, it's gross. I know it's gross. And for, for three or four occasions, I've tried to stop and told myself, I'm done, cold turkey. I'm not going to bite my nails anymore. I'll let them grow. Then I'll clip them like a normal person. And it's, it's hard breaking a long, bad habit. And you would think 2020 would punt it out of me, right? Because that's, that's nasty. I mean, I'm, who knows what I'm touching and I'm sticking my finger. Hey, let's just not go there. That's a bad old habit that needs to go away. But it's so long that I've done it. It's so hard to break it. This is why there's a spiritual tug of war going on. I'm going to ask my son Haddon to come up. I'm going to illustrate this right now with, with a literal tug of war match. Haddon and I have kind of practiced this at home, which we kind of do when we're always doing illustrations, but I'm hoping the camera can see this. Yeah, there. Haddon, come on up here. If you can't see this at home, you'll just have to envision it. Haddon, in this scenario, okay, we've already practiced this, so Haddon knows what's coming, and we're not going to hurt each other, I hope. Had in this scenario, I am going to be the flesh, okay? And you're going to be normal person, okay? Normal Haddon. And Haddon's pretty strong for his age, okay? He's a pretty strong kid. And Haddon, what I want you to do is I want you to pull with all your strength and see if you can move your daddy. I'm the flesh, and you're a person that doesn't want to sin anymore. So just pull as hard as you can, okay? Pull. Don't get real burned, but pull. Pull hard. Come on, pull hard. Is that your hardest? That's your hardest? The flesh is strong. Now, now no, notice what happens when the flesh pulls. All right, you try not to move. Try not to move, okay? Okay, now Hadden's pretty strong for his age, but Hadden, I, we, we already practice this at home. I, I can move Hadden anytime I want to because Daddy's strong, right, for now. One day the tables will turn. But for now, I can pull Hadden as much as I want to because the flesh is stronger than the person, okay? But let's flip the scenario around. Now, Hadden, you're the flesh. 
And we've already proven you're strong. You're really strong. Okay? But now I'm a Christian with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now you're the flesh and you want sin and you're going to pull me towards sin. Pull me toward the speakers. All right? Pull me toward the speakers. See, but now I have the Holy Spirit. You notice the difference? That is really pulling. You can't see him. He's behind the TV. But he's basically pulling with all his might. Now I'm going to pull with the power of the Holy Spirit. And there you go. Good job, buddy. Did you get rubber? Yes, Clapper had him. He has to go lick his wounds. Thanks, Haddon. Uh, guys, the illustration is simple, but that's basically what's going on, okay? The flesh is really, really strong, and the habits are really, really long. And that's not a good match. That's not a fair match between me and the flesh. But that's why we have an ace up our sleeve, the Holy Spirit. And what's going on here in James, though, is he seems to be telling the people that they're letting the sinful flesh win. They're losing to the flesh by not utilizing the power they've been given over that sin. They're still losing to the flesh. Their old sinful habits and desires are telling them life is about them. And others in the church are thinking the exact same thing. Life is about them. So instead of two people seeking the welfare and betterment of each other, they're both acting selfishly and both acting greedily. And now we have a conflict in the church between two eternal brothers and sisters in Christ, and neither is getting what their sinful flesh wants. So there's a conflict. And it's so sad and so devastating because this is the opposite of love. It's the opposite of love. James mentions three really evil things taking place in the church. Let's go over these again. Because new-natured people are still living in their old sinful desires. Look at what he says. He says, number one, you desire and you cannot have, so you murder you desire and you cannot have that your flesh. You cannot get what your flesh wants, so you murder. You remember the old story with uh, King David and Bathsheba? That actually happened. David saw a beautiful woman. He wanted the beautiful woman. She was attached to somebody else, so he took the woman and made sure that the husband of the woman got put in the front lines of the battle where he knows the guy would die, and he did die. And so he got the guy out of the way, and so he got Bathsheba. So he actually killed somebody to get what his sinful flesh wanted. Now, I don't know if in James, murder, actual literal murder was taking place. I don't know if that's true. But if we know the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus equates anger and hatred with murder. It's the same to Jesus. So if you're angry with your brother, if you hate your brother, Jesus calls it murder. Now, that's hard for us to understand, but that's true because Jesus says, man, anything that's anti-love is like murder. You're taking the life of someone that I love and you're hurting them. So he says you, you desire and you cannot have, so you're hating your brother or your sister. You're angry with them or possibly maybe even murder took place. Number two, he says you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. There it is again. I cannot get what I want. Covet is like a really strong, almost a lust, desire to have something that you don't have. And he says, you're going to get it at all costs. So you fight and you quarrel in order to get it. And he says, number three, you do not have because you don't ask for it. And the reason is, is because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You know that what you're wanting, what you're desiring is not lining up with God's will. So you have to connive to get it. You have to go outside of the will of God. You guys ever done that with something you wanted? You had to go kind of around what is organic 
and kind of make your own path in order to get it because God said no to it already, and you're like, oh, but I want it, and therefore I'm going to go get it. That's basically what James is saying. You covet and you do not have, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And I can hear James 2,000 years later going, oh, God. I want you to think about this. People who have Jesus actually living inside of them are murdering, hating one another. They're fighting with each other and desiring to get more stuff to satisfy their fleshly, sinful desires. What's going on here? What is going on here? This is a huge problem in the church then and now. This is still going on today. We've been risen from the dead, have we not? We've been commanded to love each other as Christ loves us, have we not? But we're still hating, we're still bickering, we're still living selfishly. We've grown ups, adults, in the church acting like selfish children. You ever watch those sports, sporting games, those athletes who, they're like 35 years old and someone pushes them and they foul them and they don't like that so they push them back and then there's a scuffle and there's a fight well, how many years ago was it? The Malice in the Palace, 15 years ago or something like that? Where basically these guys, they got, in, they didn't like, they got into a scuffle because the one guy fouled the other and he didn't like it. It was a little harder than he wanted, so he pushed back. And, and suddenly they were fighting each other and suddenly they were fighting all the fans too. It was like one of the craziest scenes in sports. And so I remember the, I remember the commentators going, man, they're acting like children. I remember them saying that. These athletes are acting like little children. Or... Road rage? Anyone ever been involved in road rage? Somebody cuts me off and I don't like that because I was sailing along. <laughs> Not mentioning any names. I don't like that, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass them and get in front of them and, and, and slow down so they know how wrong they were. Guys, that's childish. No slow down? You just sail by them? That's, that's, that's what we're talking about today, okay? That's adults and grown-ups acting like little children. And the fact that we have to keep reminding each other to love and not be self-centered proves we're not doing very well in the tug of war. We have to be reminded to love. See, guys, love is elementary in the Christian faith. Did you know that? Love is elementary in the Christian faith. There's uh, Watson, or Sherlock Holmes saying to Watson, elementary, my dear Watson. Love is elementary. It's not a deep, hidden doctrine for the long-tenured Christ follower. You don't find love 20, 30 years into your Christian circle and go, Oh, yeah, love's important. Man, I'm glad I found that. No, you find that at the beginning. It's the ABCs of practical Christian living. Even children can understand love because it's so basic. But you could tell the people James is writing to here are pretty bad at loving each other. They're hating each other to the level James calls it murder. They're fighting. They're embroiled in all sorts of conflicts. They're judging each other, as we're going to learn later in James chapter 4. And they're desiring only what satisfies their sinful flesh. What is going on here? In James 1, we found out that these people were scattered and were facing persecution since they were faithfully following Jesus. That's how James opens. To those who are dispersed and scattered because of persecution. And it would be tempting to think that those people who were enduring persecution for Christ's sake have to be experts at loving one another by now, right? If you're facing persecution and you're still following Jesus Christ, well, then you must be an expert Christian and an ace at loving one another. But in reality, they were experts at judging. Experts at being critical. 
experts at gossiping, at backbiting, and tearing people down. Does it sound similar to today's church? Should be experts at love, but we're experts at quite the opposite. Because we don't seem to be winning this spiritual tug of war so far. But it's a strange thing to consider. It's strange because we're still very religious. I mean, we're here. We're singing songs. We regularly go to church, most of us. We regularly read our Bibles, most of us. We regularly pray and give offerings to the church. We worship God so passionately that we cry and we lift up our hands. Based on our religious duties, we're obviously Christians, right? I mean, it's clear based on our religious duties. But why does our religion often stop short of loving one another? I want you to recall what James said in James chapter 1. He talks about pure religion. He says at the end of James 1, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, listen to this, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world, which worldliness, teaser for next week, is our second problem. It's clear that we have a religion oftentimes that's falling short of loving others. And this is why the scriptures so often remind us of love. It's so basic, but it's so easy to lose track of. And it's also so true that love is so profound that the devil himself will trade us any other part of religion as long as we don't love one another. He doesn't care how religious we are as long as we don't love. Let's remind ourselves of love by looking at a few passages quickly here. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Listen to Revelation 2 when John is writing to a church, a pretty good church. In Revelation 2, he says this, he says, I know your works. Jesus speaking through John, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. So they're finding out false apostles, holding them to scripture, and that's a really good thing. He says, I know that you are patiently enduring and bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Wow, a really good church. They're finding false apostles, they're bearing up and growing in the midst of persecution. And then he says this, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You abandoned the love you had at first. He says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Why, James? Because religion without love is useless. Are we hearing that, Christians? Religion without love is worthless. 1 John 3.16-18, through 18, we know John 3.16, listen to 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Love. One more. John 15, this is the one TGD read for us. He says, Jesus speaking, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. You can't miss love and be a Christ follower. We are reminded so often in the scriptures that love is the most important part of the Christian religion. And I said the devil, he'll trade us anything, any other part of religion, because he knows that love is what truly makes us like Jesus. Love is. Without love, none of it matters. And without love, we are wrong in everything. See, the Pharisees, these people who Jesus encountered so many times, had religion coming out of their eyeballs. They were so religious, so pious, so law-keeping. But they didn't walk in love. And Jesus had more difficulties with the Pharisees than he had with anybody. The, the religious leaders were the ones always embroiled in conflict with Jesus Christ because they didn't care about love. And Jesus came to love. There was a tug of war. And all over this planet right now, we have countless people, literally billions of people, gathering right now in the name of religion towards God. Man, we should see love all over this planet if there's that many people right now gathering for religion in the name of God. But why does love seem difficult to find? Why? What is going on here? And James is going to give us the answer. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? It's not that we don't think love is a great idea. We all think love is a great idea. We all think that. If I polled the audience here, 100% of people would say, yes, love is a good idea. We all agree we should be loving each other more than we currently are. Well, then why aren't we? And it's because there's a spiritual tug of war going on inside of us. We want to love, and at the same time, we don't want to love because it's costly. To love and we're consumers and we want we don't want to spend while we gain remember that the ideal questions I asked you at the beginning we want to gain everything without spending anything that's what's called a bargain when you get without spending that's why people love Black Friday because they can get while spending much much less that's the American mantra get and don't spend but real Christ-like love is incredibly costly I mean, in order to understand that, all we need to do is look at what Jesus did and know there's no bargain. Jesus did not get a bargain to love one another. He laid himself on a wooden cross and he died. That's how costly love was. He spent everything, every penny, every ounce so that he could love us. And then he says, love like I have loved you. There's no bargain here. 
Now, if we could find a way to love with, like Jesus loved us without spending any time, any money, any energy, we'd all be doing it regularly, just like every other part of religion. We'd all be doing it because there's very little cost. But love is the thing that identifies us as Christ followers, not our religious duties. It's love. Billions of people who hate, who hate Jesus right now are very religious people. There's a spiritual tug of war, which is a very real tug of war happening inside of our hearts and minds right now. And we know James is right. We know he's right, but we honestly don't want to love anymore unless it's cheap to do so. And if we were honest, we would admit that we want people to bless us more than we bless them. And we're not alone because our neighbors want to be blessed more than they want to bless us. So there's the problem. There's exactly the problem James is talking about. We have lots of selfish Christians who look nothing like Jesus. We say we love Jesus and talk is cheap. I mean, even a pulpit, a pastor, a sermon, it's not that costly. We love talk. Talk, talk my ears off. I love talk because talk is cheap. And we like cheap. We're Scrooges in that way. We like talking Christianity more than we like practicing Christianity. Talk is cheap. Action is costly. And we're looking for a bargain. Loving others isn't a bargain, at least on the earth. It costs us everything to love one another. But practicing love is the only thing that matters. And the scriptures make it very clear that love is the thing that validates our salvation on Judgment Day. Love is. Not our testimony. Not our date in our Bible. Not our remembrance of saying a prayer. Not our church attendance. Not our tithes and offerings records. It's love that identifies whether we belong to Jesus or not. Because love doesn't happen without the power of God and the influence of Jesus upon our souls. Love, God's type of love, is impossible without Jesus. The world can't do that type of love without Jesus Christ. But after dozens of years in the church and hearing about love all the time and practicing religion, we're still really bad at love. We're experts at hating and gossiping and backbiting and judging and self-seeking. But we're, real still, we're still really bad at showing Christ-like love on a weekly basis. How is that possible? And this is problem number one, and it's a big problem, and there's nothing to shrug off here. This is a really big problem. If we are acting selfishly more than we are loving our neighbors, James has told us that our religion is worthless to God. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how adamant you sing and how much you show up and how many tithes and offerings you give. If you're not going to love your neighbor, what are you doing? We might as well be unbelievers because we worship and praise God in vain. It means nothing to him. Did you know that? He doesn't, he doesn't receive it. He doesn't accept it. In fact, you can say it this strongly. Our religion is an attempt to mock God if we don't get on the board with love. What we think we're doing, we're actually pretending to love God without actually loving him. And we're supposed to be convicted by this today because this is a serious enough problem to keep us out of the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is for people who love Jesus and who love each other. You know that, right? 
The kingdom of God is about loving Jesus and loving others. Can you imagine us still getting to heaven one day with still bickering, still gossiping, still judging, still acting selfishly towards others for all of eternity? It's not going to happen. Yes, Christ is going to complete our sanctification process and we'll be perfect in heaven, but you know what he's not going to do? He's not going to completely change who we were upon the earth. That's what saving faith does. If we aren't different by the time we get to Judgment Day, our religion and our so-called faith in Jesus is going to fail us if we don't have love. If we don't have Christ-like love to validate our faith, Jesus is going to disown us. He will say, I don't know who you are. Your religion to me was worthless. It doesn't matter. I didn't accept it. I don't want it. You with, without love? I told you all the time, it's about love. All the commandments can be summed up in these two greatest commandments. Love Jesus and love your neighbor. We're going to look at problem number two next Sunday. Problem number two is another big problem. But I want to very quickly go to the solution before we close because it's sort of depressing so far going, oh man, we're bad at love. I want to end on a good note. And we have to go to the solution in order to do that because this is where James says, he says, bumping down to verse 7, to deal with problem number one, he says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Guys, in the spiritual tug of war, we have an ally. A mighty, mighty ally, and it's God himself. Remember the Holy Spirit? We have a mighty, mighty ally. And we have to understand the tension here today. We are in a battle for our souls. The flesh will have its desires and will have victory over us. That's the flesh's goal, to gratify its desires and to have victory over the soul, no matter the cost. And the spirit of Jesus is stronger than the flesh and the devil. And he wants our eternal health and victory, and he will never get up until we have finished our course. I mean, praise the Lord, right, that the Spirit is not going to let us lose. He is not going to let us lay down in this battle. He's going to yell to us, get up and pull. It's a tug of war. And yet, as always in the Word of God, there is a step of discipline you and I must take for this victory to take place. This isn't automatic. It is going to be a step of discipline that we have. And James says we have to do the obvious. We have to submit ourselves to God. We have to give our lives to God. If you want to win the spiritual tug of war, your life now belongs to the Lord. Because you cannot win it without him. Your life has to be handed over to Jesus. And if you're not willing to submit your life to Jesus, this battle's over. We're already losers. Because we cannot win this tug of war without spiritual, divine, God-like power. And submission to God should be obvious by now, guys. God's team is going to win. His team will win. Spoiler alert, God will win. And we want to make absolutely sure that on the last day, we're on his team. Because he's going to win. And I want to be on that team. And I want you on that team when the end comes. James says this. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Isn't that an amazing promise? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. In the spiritual tug of war, the devil will run away from me if I simply resist him? 
Well, has anyone ever heard that verse on its own? Has you ever heard that verse on its own, resist the devil and he will flee from you? I've heard that countless times, just kind of on its own. Um, Take it out of context, but honestly, guys, there's a step one to that. That's step two of the process. Step one that's kind of like in the background there is really important to step two. In fact, step two is an impossibility without step one. Because I want you to consider before a moment, before you flip the, the slide there, Luke, I want you to consider that I want to defeat the devil. Okay, I want to defeat the devil. I don't want to lose in spiritual tug of war. So I'm going to resist the devil, and he's going to flee from me. So let's make this like a, let's scale this to an earthly metaphor here. Let's, let's imagine that I get in a scuffle with the biggest, strongest, best fighter in the world. Okay, And he's so much stronger than me that he can do whatever he wants to me. He's going to fight me, he really hates me, he's really angry with me, and he wants to hurt me. But I don't want to lose to this guy because he could kill me. So someone comes up and whispers me in my ear and says, hey man, just resist him, and he'll flee from you. Does that give me a lot of confidence? Does that give me a lot of encouragement to, to stand up in my full glory to this man and resist him, and hoping that he's going to take one look at me in all my glory and run away, saying, well, I don't want any piece of Todd. Look how big he is. Look how strong he is. And that happens so much in the Word of God, guys. We yank promises out of context without noticing the conditions to the promise. James says, next slide now, Luke, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Do you notice the difference? How is that different than what, just taking the verse out of context, resist the devil and he will flee from you? Because when I submit myself to the Lord, James is telling us that God is now going to fight for us and with us. So back in my scenario, let's assume the biggest, strongest, best fighter in the world wanted to beat me up or even kill me. He's in pretty good shape to get that done. I'm not that strong. I'm not that big. I'm not that great of a fighter. But if I came back at, back at him with a team of Navy SEALs, do you think he's going to run away from me? Yes, he will. And that's the difference. Do you notice the difference? Otherwise, why would the biggest, strongest, best fighter in the world run away from me? Why would he run away from me? Who am I? He could knock me into next Tuesday. But the devil will flee from us when two things happen. The devil will run away when we submit our lives to Christ and his will at the cost of getting what we want. And number two, we resist him. And we don't let him pull us the other direction. It's just like the tug of war illustration. I have the power of God and all I need to do is pull. And if I pull and the devil notices I'm winning because I'm strong in the Lord, he's going to leave. He's out of there. He doesn't, he's a smart warrior. He's not going to fight a battle he can't win. If he notices my resistance and the strength of God, he's out of there. And James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Or in my paraphrase, speaking primarily to myself, you can't do this on your own, dummy. You have full access to God's strength, his wisdom, and his grace through Jesus Christ. Use it. Use it. James says that God will come close to all of those who come close to him. If you want victory in the spiritual tug of war, and you want to stop being selfish, you want to stop being greedy, you want to start loving others like Jesus loves you, you've got to recognize there's only one way to accomplish this victory. It's through the power and the closeness of God, is it not? If I want to win this tug of war and stop being so 
bitter and stop being so selfish. Stop being so greedy and actually look out for the widows and orphans of the world. I have to be near God. I have to be fighting in the strength of God. When we submit ourselves to God and to his will, when we resist the devil's attacks to go back to our selfish desires, and if we stay close to God and his word, then the tug of war will be far less tug and much more dragging the sinful flesh into submission to Jesus. James ends this passage by saying something that's probably no one's life passage. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. It's a little different and deeper than live, love, laugh, isn't it? James ends this lesson by giving a solemnness to our minds. He doesn't want us being coy with this battle any longer. This isn't your two-minute devotional today, okay, while you brush your teeth. This is a battle plan for eternal victory. And James says we need a proper spirit and a proper focus to fight this battle. We need clean hands. We need pure hearts. Fighting this battle in our sins is not an option. You have to have the cleansing power of Jesus first. I hope you know that. That if you want to win the spiritual tug of war, Jesus has to cleanse you and has to give you that new nature and that new power first. And if you're not clean today through Jesus Christ, that's step number one. Go to Jesus, admit your filthiness, admit your need for him to help you, and he will cleanse you. And you will know when you're saved. You know how you will know? You will be given power over sins that used to control you. Sins that used to own you, you will stand up to them and say, no longer, no longer, you don't own me anymore. You can't do that without Jesus Christ. That's how I know I'm saved. I can say no to my flesh. And I can pull it the other direction. James also says to stop with the frivolity or the lack of seriousness in Christianity is... Is Christianity a recreation to us? Is it a hobby to be done at our leisure? If so, we don't get it, guys. If, if, if that's what Christianity is, is we do it at our leisure and we do it when it's kind and convenient and comfortable, we don't get it. This is a tug of war for our souls. If we lose, we lose eternally. And God according to the next passage we'll look at, will become a practical enemy. God will line up against us on the last day. Does anyone want that to be the reality of their soul? God lines up against you. He's your enemy. And that's the option. Either we win and we enter into God's glorious kingdom as a child and an heir of all the treasures of Jesus Christ and we never suffer again, or Jesus disowns us and he says, you're my enemy. And James is saying to us, come on, guys, this is not a joke. This is not a joke. I'd rather see more people mourning and weeping over their sins than laughing and bouncing about in Christianity because it would prove that they understand the gravity of this battle. James is saying, do whatever necessary to make this battle of utmost importance. If you need to, get on your face before the Lord and humble yourself and say, Lord, I haven't been doing good in this battle. I've been losing. 
I am full of all kind of greed and selfishness and bitterness and hatred towards my brothers and sisters. And God's promise is that if you will humble yourself, he won't rub your nose in it. He will pick you up. He will exalt you. He will give you exactly what you're looking for. Let's read the passage again before we close. James says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Bumping down to verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. In this spiritual tug of war, Jesus is our only hope. And Jesus is our only victory. But Jesus is real hope. And Jesus is certain victory. Draw close to him. Get his strength to daily love those around you as Christ has loved us. This is the spiritual tug of war. This is part one. We'll look at part two next week. Jesus Christ is how we win this battle. He lives inside of us. He wants the very best for us. And if we draw near to him, if we humble ourselves, if we submit our lives to God and we pull, victory is ours. It's a guarantee. Would you bow and pray with me? Father, it's long and deep and hard, and I knew that coming in. And Father, this is only part one of part two, but I pray that you'd help us understand the gravity of this tug of war it's happening right now. It'll happen as soon as we leave. The tug of war will begin once again. The flesh will say, this is what I want, do this. And the spirit will say, no, this is not what I've called you to, do this. How are we going to win? How are we going to win, Father? I pray that we'd understand what you've taught us today. This is a battle plan for victory. If we submit ourselves to you and your will, if we humble ourselves before you, you will pull our rope with us and we will win. Help us to pull with all our strength, the strength that you provide. Help us to love those around us because it's the absolute duty of every Christ follower to be like their Lord in that way. Give us the strength. Give us the mindset for it. Help us this Christmas season to look at our neighbor as an object, a person to be loved, as Christ has loved us, that we would find that a privilege. Thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Hope it was a blessing. We'll see you Wednesday for church family time.